Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, February 12th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. Oregon Governor John Kitzhaber has served for 4,419 days, good for number 20 on the all-time list. If he serves out his term, he will climb to number two, because the current Iowa governor is in the top spot, and that's not changing anytime soon. But now there's even a question if Kitzhaber will pass Isaac Williamson, governor of New Jersey from 1817 to 1828, because Kitzhaber is having some trouble, trouble that Isaac Williamson could scarcely have imagined. The governor's fiance, or as Sylvia Hayes bills herself, the state's first lady, has various pursuits. She once ran for office, then she met the governor, he divorced his wife, they became a couple. He convinced her she could do more good as a consultant. In 2010, Hayes and Kitzhaber got engaged. It would be her third marriage. No, wrong, it would be her fourth, because it was revealed that she got married in a ploy to win legal status for a man who faced deportation. For this, she was paid $5,000. She said she was young and needed the money. It was then revealed that she had once planned to buy land for marijuana farming. She apologized. She was in an abusive relationship. There are new revelations that Hayes has earned over $100,000 as a consultant, billing herself as the first lady, and it doesn't seem that she declared that on her taxes. The scandal also takes on international proportions. Kitzhaber and Hayes flew to a conference called the Global Wellbeing and Gross National Happiness Lab in Bhutan that was paid for by the government of Germany. She got consulting gigs in Bhutan. The first lady of Oregon and the policy advisor to the governor on the issues of clean energy and economic development, as she calls herself, has landed the governor in hot water. One other detail. It was revealed by the Oregonian newspaper that, well, I'll just let an irate letter to the editor of the Oregonian say it. Sylvia Hayes asked the governor's staff to, quote, sneak cats into a hotel room. This behavior is not only self-centered and inconsiderate, it is also dangerous. I realize this might not seem like a big deal to most people, and that many people probably think they're clever to sneak pets into pet-free places, but perhaps this letter will make people, in particular Sylvia Hayes, reconsider their behavior, especially if it might expose unsuspecting allergy sufferers to dangerous tiggers. Oh, no, I'm sorry, triggers. A couple of days ago, the governor said this. I am in love. I do not believe that I've been blinded. I, I am wide, wide open, eyes wide open. He reiterated his support today. In fact, the governor still intends to marry Hayes. The governor did not use the phrase, make an honest woman out of her. On the show today, 
I give the spiel over to Song, a singer-songwriter who is today on the verge of breaking. And a new company that promises compassion, humanity, and excellent customer service. All right, that's possible. What if I told you it's a healthcare company? Oh, that's different. But first, terrorism and the definition thereof. The fight over terrorism is almost as fraught as the fight over the definition of terrorism, not just how to define it, but when to apply it and even why it matters. So often we're told that terrorism is not just the means, but it is the ends. Here's Alex Perry, Newsweek writer and author of The Hunt for Boko Haram, talking to NPR. Violence now is the point. There is no means to an end here. The end is the killing. If you look at the videos that Boko Haram puts out, there's ritualistic beheading. They use cutlasses when they go to war. It's a death cult. Well, to talk about terrorist groups all over the world and the definition thereof, joining me is Max Abrams. He's a professor at Northeastern University. He specializes in terrorism. He's a member at the Council on Foreign Relations. Hello, Professor Abrams. Thanks for having me. Happy to join you. Years ago, more than a decade ago, I heard an analogy that seemed pretty useful to me. It was debating if the United States should fight terrorism is like during World War II debating if we should fight submarines. Terrorism and submarines or U-boats are a tactic. Our enemy is Al-Qaeda or our enemy is the Nazis. Then again, I think about, well, neo-Nazi hate groups should be fought and certainly there are certain ideologies that need to be stood up to. What do you think of that? Well, I agree. I, I don't think we can go to war against a uh, tactic. Uh, I think that instead we should be looking at who the perpetrators are and, and what's the best way to combat them. Furthermore, it's a bit ironic to say that we're fighting against terrorism when, as you know, uh, the United States has been working with the Kurds. The Kurds are considered one of our strongest allies in the current iteration of the war on terrorism against Islamic State, and the Kurds themselves, uh, at least some of them, uh, have ties to a terrorist group called the PKK, which uh, has been on the State Department's list of foreign terrorist organizations. And so clearly the goal isn't to fight terrorism per se, but to fight those who are using terrorism against us and our interests. Yes, against us. And there's almost nothing about terrorism that uh, isn't confounding when you look at it deeply. You know, the IRA challenges our assumptions. The uh, Tamil Tigers challenge the assumption that terrorists never win. And even the notion of negotiating with terrorists, of course, we've uh, been through that. I want to let's go back to Boko Haram. If it is true that this is just a death cult, I think that that would be singular in world history. I know of no groups and no armies that organized on the principles of serial killers. Would you consider what they do? They're doing just death for death's sake? So Boko Haram is quite a, a special group. Political scientists generally approach terrorist groups with this assumption that we're dealing with rational actors that these are rational political actors, and they use violence not as an end, but as a means to, to further their political platform. And, and, and that kind of description is applied particularly to the leadership of militant groups. It might be said that, you know, the foot soldiers are crazy, you know, they might want to blow themselves up, 
But at the very top level, we're dealing with sort of rational, politically-minded, strategic thinkers. In the case of Boko Haram, though, you look at who the leader is, Shekau, and he is completely crazy. He is nuts. And so I think that Boko Haram is less strategic than most groups, that the leadership is not careful, not necessarily politically minded. And I think that to the extent that it has a strategy, it's not so much political or ideological. It's more like a gang in terms of uh, you know, amassing as much personal power and riches and women on the way as possible. Given, I'm, I'm going to put aside the fact that it's horribly immoral, but is terrorism a rational tactic for many insurgents throughout the world? Well, it really depends on how the violence is used. Right. Violence can be strategic. I could list a, a number of asymmetric campaigns where groups turned to violence and they did manage to coerce impressive government concessions. For example, the Mujahideen attacking the Red Army in Afghanistan, or uh, the Yeshuv, the pre-Israel Jewish population in Palestine. They were very successful with the use of violence. However, not all violence is, uh, is equal, and that one of the, my main research findings is that very selective violence, we call it, violence directed against military and government targets tends to work out favorably for militant groups. However, when they blow up civilians, when they use violence indiscriminately, it tends to be politically counterproductive. It tends to evoke a backlash from the local population. As a result, members of the group uh, tend to defect. And a, a good example of this, just to bring it down to a concrete example, is uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq. AQI went absolutely ballistic on the population there. And ultimately, the, it was very um, unproductive for the group because moderate Sunnis got upset. It wasn't just uh, Shia. And soon everybody turned against the group. And that's essentially why, even more than the surge, uh, we stopped hearing about it. You know, a lot of people say that the Obama administration was very slow to responding to Islamic State over the summer, you know, that it was gobbling up Iraq and Syria, and Washington didn't do anything about it. And the reason why we didn't do anything about it, actually, is because we were used to the AQI model. We were used to the al-Qaeda in Iraq model. The interesting thing about Islamic State is that that really hasn't happened. A U.S.-led response is necessary because the local actors never sufficiently rose up against the group. And interestingly, uh, the backlash hasn't happened with, with Boko Haram in Nigeria either. And it's for the same reason. In both cases, the government alternative to the group, in the case of Islamic State, that would be the Assad regime. And in the case of Boko Haram, that would be the Good Luck Jonathan regime. Both of those government options are seen as poor from the perspective of the population. And so I do think that it's really just a matter of time, that we're looking at the heyday of both Islamic State and Boko Haram, and that ultimately this backlash will happen, particularly when there's new leadership. 
Okay, so here we are talking about these far-flung conflicts and groups that are in many ways opaque. And the thing that you were tweeting about recently, which is something that I commented about too, was this killing in North Carolina. Was it an act of terrorism? Were these uh, three poor Muslim students targeted because they were Muslim? Why is that um, an important debate for someone in your field to be a part of? Sure. Well, hate crimes are, you know, carry higher sentences than a normal crime, all else equal. And the reason why, and I agree with this very much, is that hate crimes negatively affect not just the, the immediate victims of, of, of the violence, if you will, but, or the discrimination, but it, it breeds fear more broadly uh, among, you know, whatever group they're associated with, in this case, you know, the, the uh, probably Muslim Americans. I think that it really does matter how we label this crime and how we conceive of it. The Muslim Americans would probably feel much safer if they genuinely believed that these three Muslims were killed over some kind of a parking dispute. Unfortunately, they don't believe that, and so this is why at least the consequences of the crime are more like a hate crime. Well, what about terrorism? That's what some people are saying. Call it terrorism. I have no problem saying that that, uh, it's terrorism. In terms of the definition of terrorism, some people would argue that you need at least three uh, three actors for an act to be terrorism. You need the perpetrators, you need the victims, and you need some, some broader group to be terrorized and, and to feel fear. And, and, and that really stacks up pretty closely with the definition of a hate crime. So I would say that all hate crimes are terrorism, but not all acts of terrorism are hate crimes. Max Abrams is a professor at Northeastern University who studies terrorism. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you, Professor Abrams. Anytime. Thanks so much. Healthcare open enrollment ends February 15th. It is kind of sad that that phrase has meaning and not just a bunch of wordy gobbledygook, but that's the case with healthcare. It's complex, it's Byzantine, it's off putting, it's intimidating. And because it's for profit, though, it means that there's a marketing op or a market opportunity. The healthcare company Oscar thinks so. Oscar is offering coverage in New York and New Jersey. Their motto is simple, intuitive, and human. And I just kept seeing the ads on the subways. And they look different to me. They were cartoons and the characters were appealing and symmetrical. And what they were promising, it took me a while to realize this was an actual healthcare company, like the boring healthcare companies with the color blue and invoking of shields and crosses and crests. So joining me now is CEO of Oscar, Mario Schlosser, who is from Germany. Hello, Mario. Hey. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. So well, first of all, just tell us how Oscar's a young company. How are you guys doing so far? How are we doing? I think quite excellently. We have now about 32,000 members, and we have been selling insurance policies uh, since October 2013. Right now, in the last couple of days of uh, open enrollment, as it's called, which means you can still sign up for 2015 health insurance coverage with us. Um, we uh, became the first insurance company, I think, ever pretty much to give everyone in our plans, totally free telephonic visits to the doctor. So you push a button in our app and the doctor will call you back 
And now 60% of all bronchitis episodes, for example, are purely solved um, over the telephone. Well, isn't it also good business? I mean, if people interact with you via G-chats or on the phone or however, isn't that cheaper than actually going to the doctor? That's why I like this this sort of like new world of insurance and, and our business model, really, because we're so aligned with the interests of the member. And um, I think that shows in the happiness of the members we have. So I saw your founder, Josh Kushner, at mm-hmm. the uh, Clinton Health Matters Initiative, and he got a lot of laughs on a panel by saying he is the first, he founded the first healthcare company that is going viral, you know, a mm-hmm. nod to the fact that customers uh, convince other customers to join. But he also yeah. said, and he said, I think I might get in trouble for this. He said, there's a lot of people in this industry, healthcare, that are also just evil. And they don't actually care about the patient. And he said he was kind of surprised with by that. So as though, as I look at the reason that Oscar exists, it's not a charity. It's funded by venture capital. You look at the profit margins of healthcare companies. You know, United Health profit margin of 4.3% and Anthem 3.4%. Mm-hmm. And since we're talking about such huge companies, there's a lot of money to be made. Or what are the evil practices? that you'll be able to stamp out and not caring about the patient while still maintaining the profit margins to give your investors a return? Yeah, uh, I, I would say there's two things. Um, one is the complete lack of transparency and insights into cost in the healthcare system. I mean, it really is the only business I can come up with where you as a consumer have no idea what you're going to pay before you go and see a doctor. You have absolutely no clue what, what you're going to pay. And in unfortunately, many situations, your insurance company doesn't have any clue either. <laughs> um, when Josh talks about the, the sort of like evil um, people in healthcare, what he means there is some of that. We have literally just in the last two weeks or so received claims for where a doctor bills us $350,000 for a procedure that Medicare meaning insurance run by the government for people over 65, would maybe pay two or $3,000 for. I mean, this is a, it's a highway robbery. In any other industry, this would be outright frauds, and we are treating it as such, of course. And we're going to the regulators with those kind of cases. Um, but insurance is commonplace. And this most likely, this is the uh, unnerving, infuriating thing, most likely would have slipped through the cracks in many other insurance companies' billing systems because they're not built to enforce any kind of cost discipline uh, or even even worse, put costs in line with quality. Another example that makes me to the second point as well there is when we came into the markets, we took about six years' worth of medical claims, medical history from pretty much 40,000 doctors or so in New York City, anonymized on a patient basis, but not anonymized on a doctor basis. We were able to look at that and essentially derive from this data set a measure of efficiency for an episode of care. When you got diagnosed, when you got healed, how expensive all in was this care you, you were delivered, including lab tests and radiology and so on. And we also derived a measure of quality, clinical quality, for each doctor in the city. And when you plot these, um, again, cost efficiency against quality, doctor by doctor on a chart, the one thing you see is what you don't see which is there is no correlation whatsoever between cost and quality in the system. If you buy a more expensive car, you think it has a better engine and drives faster and is safer maybe. You know, that's just not the case in healthcare. There's no rhyme or reason in most situations as to why something is expensive and why something else isn't. You think you're going to a surgeon, let's say. Um, he's expensive, so he must be great. Not the case. No correlation um, whatsoever between that. 
Mario Schlosser is the CEO of Oscar Health Insurance, a company that I don't want to say it, but kind of sounds like is trying to is trying to disrupt health insurance as we know it. Thank you, Mario. Thank you very much. Great to be in the program. Well, I got a feeling, baby. Oh, I got a New York feeling with Mike Pesca, baby. Oh, baby, 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 baby. Mama, know I got a feeling. And now the spiel, a fantastic replay. Back in September, we brought you an interview with musician Xavier de Frepolez, who records under the moniker Fantastic Negrito. And fantastic he was. What a performer, what a songwriter, what a story he told. And if you want to hear the entire story, we put it in the Gist's feed. It originally aired on September 19th. But now, today, it has been announced that Xavier has won a contest among 7,000 entrants and who will be a featured performer in NPR's Tiny Desk concert series. Well, let me tell you, I know that Tiny Desk. I've been to Bob Boylan's desk. And this desk, this desk right here, it's even tinier than that one. And this microphone right here has recorded Xavier before. Therefore, let me give my spiel over to this guy who is having his deserved moment. Actually, if you listen to the first interview, you will realize that his life has had many, many interesting moments. But now it is time to discover him anew. When he was here in September, Xavier performed a few songs and we played parts of them. But now let me give my spiel over to a complete tune. It's called Honest Man. And that's Xavier de Frepolez, Fantastic Negrito. With my hand Wandering, murdering Every time that I get the chance I'm a human, baby, don't you know But remember first, I'm a man You painted pictures for me, woman That I refuse to understand Yesterday it felt so good But today it feels so bad These streets got me wandering Looking for my fix again I should have paid the Chinese girl I'm losing everything I ever had Yesterday it felt so good but today it feels so bad. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi once tried to sneak ferrets onto a roller coaster. Managing producer of Slate Podcast Joel Myers claims never to have snuck any animal into a fine dining establishment. Those were his kids who were urinating, defecating, scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, once snuck a reference to the TV show Bad Judge into the credits of this show. Go to iTunes, subscribe to us there. Go to gist.com slash gist email. 
To sign up for our daily email, go to Yo. It's an app. Download it. Sign up for podcasts. We'll give you this podcast as soon as it's ready. And we are on Facebook.com slash SlateGist. I'll post the entire Xavier interview there if you prefer to get it that way. I once snuck former pro wrestler Jake Roberts and former NFL QB Ken Stabler into Iowa, Kansas, and both Dakotas. It was the Snakes on the Plains tour. It did not end well. Thanks for listening. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's Supreme Court correspondent and the host of Slate's new amicus podcast. On our newest episode, we ask why the court is once again taking on lethal injection, only seven years after ruling that it was not cruel and unusual punishment. You'll find that by searching for amicus in the iTunes store or by visiting slate.com slash podcasts.